In the last lecture, we looked at the comparison of the halogens for free radical halogenation of alkanes. What we're going to do in this lecture is start off by looking at the comparison of different CH bonds in the alkane for a particular halogenation. And that will introduce the theory of hyperconjugation to explain the different bond strengths of CH bonds. And then we'll move on towards the end of the lecture to look at a practical example, which again will introduce another concept, this concept being selectivity. Now, last lecture, we explained the difference in the halogens on the basis of the bonds made and the bonds broken in the propagation steps. In other words, on thermodynamics. We can do the same thing when we look at CH bonds, different CH bonds in alkanes. And in order to do that, we therefore need to look at the different bond strengths of CH bonds in alkanes. And if you look at that handout that I gave to you last lecture, the bottom table gives you just that, the bond strengths of different types of CH bonds. And you can see that in methane, the bond strength is 439 kilojoules per mole, whereas in a methyl group in ethane or some of those other two compounds, it's only 410 kilojoules per mole. The CH of a methylene group is even lower. It's 395 kilojoules per mole. And finally, a methine, a single CH on a carbon bearing alkyl groups, is only 389 kilojoules per mole. Notice when we look at the methyl groups of ethane and the other two compounds, that irrespective of where the methyl group is, the CH bond strength is still the same. It is still 410. But when we move to a methylene or a methine, or we go back to a methane, that's when we change the bond strength. And the first thing we've got to do is to explain why there is a difference between these bond strengths. On first principles, you might expect all bonds to be the same. A CH bond is a, bond, is a CH bond. Why should it have a different bond strength? Well, the bond strength is related to the ease, if you like, of breaking of that bond. And if we assume that that bond is broken into radicals, in other words, homolytically, so that one electron in the bond goes on to hydrogen and one electron goes on to the carbon, then we have a series of radicals to consider. Now, obviously, the hydrogen radical is the same irrespective of the type of CH bond we break, and therefore it's not going to cause this difference in bond strength. So perhaps the different bond strength relates in some way to the carbon radical that we form with the electron going onto the carbon. And if we assume that a radical center, which is on a carbon bearing three alkyl groups, a so-called tertiary radical, is more stable than a radical center on a carbon bearing only two alkyl groups and one hydrogen, that is a secondary radical, which in turn is more stable than a radical center on a carbon bearing only one alkyl group and two hydrogens, that's a primary radical, which last of all is more stable than the radical center of a CH3, that's the methyl radical, then at least we have a rationalization of why these bond strengths should be different. Because what we can say is that if it's easier to form the tertiary radical than to form the methyl radical, then whenever any radical species at attacks the CH bond, it will find that bond easier to break. So the easier, more easily broke bond will lead to the more stable radical. So that has rationalized at least 
the order of bond strengths of the CH bonds. But now we pose still another question. We've left ourselves with another question. And that question is, why is the tertiary radical more stable than the secondary, which is more stable than the primary, which is more stable than the methyl radical? Why should that be? Well, we can explain this in terms of a theory known as hyperconjugation. And before I go into the theory, I need, first of all, just to explain what the terms mean, hyper and conjugation. Let's look at the hyper, first of all. When you think of hyper, you might think of a, a hypermarket, which is bigger than a, than a supermarket, large. Hyper suggests something great, large. Unfortunately, that is a bit of a misnomer in hyperconjugation. As we see, um, that hyper comes about through the use of something large, but it doesn't result in anything large. But we'll discuss that in a minute. Let's look at the other part of the word, conjugation. Conjugation, in a way, is related to delocalization. Now, I know that some of you will have covered delocalization in A-level studies when you dealt with benzene. Benzene has three double bonds in its ring, alternating with three single bonds. And we say that the electrons in those pi bonds, they are delocalized around the ring. Another way of saying that is that the double bonds are conjugated. There is an alternate arrangement of double, single, double, single bonds. That is a conjugated arrangement. Now you can have that sort of conjugated arrangement in not necessarily a benzene ring or ring indeed. You can have it in a straight chain. You can have a double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, etc., etc. It could go on. And those double bonds would then be said to be conjugated and one can get delocalization of electrons across that whole series of double bonds. Now, in order for those electrons to delocalize, we actually need to overlap orbitals, the pi orbitals of those double bonds. So conjugation really means the overlap of orbitals. Now, when we look at our radicals that we're dealing with, we see we don't have pi orbitals. There are no pi orbitals there. So what orbitals have we got in this system? Well, the first orbital we have is this one, is the radical orbital. The radical center is flat with the radical electron in an atomic p orbital. So that's going to be one of our orbitals. What is that overlapping with? What can it overlap with? It's got to overlap with something on an adjacent carbon. It cannot overlap, in fact, with the groups on the same carbon, but with an adjacent carbon. And the only thing we have on adjacent carbon is an sp3 hybridized CH bond. And it is with that that the p orbital overlaps. I mean, conjugation between the p orbital and the sp3 hybrid CH bond. And because sp3 hybrid CH bonds are very strong, very stable bonds, that is where the hyper comes from. It involves conjugation involving a strong bond. It doesn't mean, as we shall see in a minute, that it involves a lot of stabilization more so than, say, benzene. It certainly does not mean that at all. In order to see why that is, we need, first of all, to understand the criteria which are needed for effective orbital overlap. And there are essentially two. The first of these is spatial proximity. The orbitals 
must ideally be pointing towards one another, or at least close in space, so that they can actually mix and intermingle. Now if you look at this situation, you see the P orbital is vertical, and the major lobe, the major bit of this sp3 hybrid orbital is pointing away from it. So in fact on that criterion, the overlap is going to be low, the conjugation is going to be low. The second criterion that we need for effective overlap is for the energies of the orbitals which we're going to overlap to be ideally of the same or very similar energy. In order to look at the two orbitals we have here, we need to draw, therefore, an energy diagram. Draw energy in a vertical sense and put in lines represent where the orbitals are and the energies of those orbitals. And we see that the p orbital containing the single electron, the atomic p orbital, is about midway on our diagram. <coughs> and the strong, very stable sigma bond is way down near the bottom of our diagram. It's much more stable orbital. Because these orbitals don't have a close energy, therefore, the overlap is going to be small. So again, on this second criterion, we have small conjugation. The hyperconjugative effect is, in fact, only a small stabilizing effect, not, as the name suggests, a large stabilizing effect. Now, uh, when we were dealing with hybridization, I said when you mix orbitals, you have to use this linear combination of atomic orbitals approach, that is, you take the number of orbitals you're going to mix and you produce the same number, n orbitals from n orbitals. You cannot produce more or fewer. So the mixing of our atomic p orbital with this time a molecular orbital, an sp3 molecular orbital, we can use the same approach with this, is going to result in two new orbitals. One of which is going to be, as we've just discussed, slightly lower in energy, slightly more stable than the sp3, say by an amount delta e, and one which is going to be correspondingly higher in energy, approximately the same amount, delta E, higher than the original P atomic orbital. Now you may say, all right, this has not led to any stabilization because we've produced two new orbitals, one of which is stabilized to about the same extent as the other one is destabilized. But you've got to remember that orbitals don't really have any, have any existence without electrons in them. And we can't discuss the energies yet until we put the electrons in. Now, in our atomic p orbital, we have one electron. That's our radical center. <coughs> in our sigma orbital, CH sigma orbital, we have two electrons. That's a bonding pair. We now fill our two new orbitals up by the alpha bar principle, that is, is, that is, filling them up from the lowest energy upwards. And we see that two electrons go into the more stable orbital, and one electron goes up into the less stable orbital. So the overall gain we have on stabilization is two electrons worth of delta E minus one electron's worth of delta E. The two down here have delta E's worth to gain, and the one up there has delta E's worth to lose. And the overall stabilization is therefore just delta E. So we gain this very tiny amount of stabilization, delta E, by this hyperconjugative effect. Now nature will tend to stabilize if it can, and therefore it will happen even though it's only a minor stabilization, we will get this hyperconjugation. Now let's try and apply this theory to our radicals that we had and, and try and define this order. What we need to look at is each of these radicals, the methyl, the primary, the secondary, 
and the tertiary, we need to look at them and see what, what is the number of hyperconjugative CH bonds which are stabilizing them. Because the greater number of hyperconjugative CH bonds we have, the greater will be the stabilization. It does depend on the number of bonds there. So we have a little table here with the type of radical and the number of CH bonds hyperconjugating. And we see that in methyl, there are no hyperconjugating CH bonds because there is no adjacent carbon. Remember, the CH bonds are on the adjacent carbon. The ones directly attached to the radical center are orthogonal at right angles to the p orbital, and any orbitals which are at right angles cannot overlap. So there's no adjacent CH bond. There's no stabilization in the methyl radical. In the primary radical, we have three CH bonds on this methyl group. In the secondary radical, we have six CH bonds on these two methyl groups. And in this tertiary radical, we have nine CHs stabilizing that radical center. And we can see, therefore, the order of stability is at least qualitatively what we have already decided. That is, the tertiary is more stable than the secondary, which is more stable than the primary, which is more stable than the methyl. Okay. Now let's look at how, in a practical sense, practical, uh, an actual example of a comparison of halogenation of these different types of bonds. What we're going to do is we're going to take two examples, one in which we compare a methylene, that's a CH2CH, versus a methyl, that's a CH3CH, and then a second example where we're going to compare a methine, that's a CHCH, single CH, and all the other groups are alkyl groups, with a methyl, again, the CH3CH. Let's look at the first example. We're going to chlorinate propane. And what we get are two products, one chloropropane and two chloropropane. The one chloropropane derived from attack of the chlorine on the methyl CH, and the two chloropropane derived from attack on the methylene CH. Now, if we look at the experimental ratio, what we find is that we get 43 parts of 1-chloropropane and 57 parts of 2-chloropropane. It looks as if the experimental ratio fits our ideal. We should get more of attack on the methylene. But experimental ratios are a bit dangerous to handle. You have to be careful using them. Because you have to allow for the fact that in propane, there are six methyl CHs and only two methylene CHs. And you have to allow for this statistical ratio. If there was no difference in reactivity between all those CHs, the methyl and the methylene CHs, then you actually see the statistical ratio. That is, 6 to 2. We don't see that. We see 43 to 57. And we now have to factorize out to normalize these experimental ratios by taking out this statistical factor. So the relative ratio per CH bond is actually 43 over 6 in ratio to 57 over 2. And that works out at a ratio of 1 to about 3 and 3 quarters. In other words, a methylene CH is about 3 and 3 quarters times more reactive than a methyl CH for halogenation, or for chlorination rather, at 25 degrees centigrade. The experimental ratio was done at 25 degrees centigrade. This relative ratio per CH bond is otherwise known as the selectivity. It is the selectivity of chlorine for the methylene CH2 over the 
uh, methyl CH3. Now let's turn to the second example where we're comparing a methylene CH with a methyl CH. Here we have 2-methylpropane and the experimental ratio at 25 degrees centigrade with chlorine is one part, sorry, is uh, 36 parts of the tertiary chloride where the chlorine has attacked the lone methylene CH and 64 parts of the primary chloride where the chlorine has attacked one of the methyl groups. And you can now see why experimental ratios are a bit misleading because if you just took that experimental ratio as it was, you'd say that the methyl CHs were more reactive than the methylene because there's more of the product derived by attack at them. But again, we have to remove this statistical ratio. The statistics now are such that we had nine methyl CHs and only one methylene CH. And so the relative ratio per CH is now 64 over 9 in ratio to 36 over 1, which comes out 1 to 5.06. In other words, a methylene CH is about five times more reactive than a methyl CH. Okay, we can now ask ourselves a question about the selectivity that we have. The selectivity is 1 to 3.76 to 5.06 methyl to methylene to methine for chlorine at 25 degrees centigrade. And we can ask the question, is it always that ratio? Will it change? And the answer is yes, the selectivity will change. Let's look at the experimental ratio when we do this reaction, for example, in a bomb in the gas phase, 600 degrees centigrade. What we find with propane is we now get the statistical ratio. We get two parts of two chloropropane and six parts more of the one chloropropane. With the two methylpropane, we don't quite go to the statistical ratio, but we're certainly heading that way. We end up with one part of the tertiary chloride and four parts of the primary chloride. So at 600 degrees centigrade, our selectivity has been lost. We don't see anymore the differentiation between those CH bonds. <coughs> Why is that? Well, the reason is that at the higher temperature, both the alkane and the chlorine have more thermal energy. And when they hit one another, they collide, there's much more likely to be a reaction. They are very much more energetic and they react almost immediately when they hit one another. Whereas at lower temperatures, the chlorine has time to think, as it were, about whether it's going to pick off a CH3CH or a methylene CH. It is much more selective about doing that at the lower temperature. At the higher temperature, it doesn't have any choice. As soon as it hit the alkane, reaction occurs. And therefore we see, or we tend to see, the statistical ratio, the ratio based purely on the number of types of CHs in the molecule. And that then leads to, or tells us, that there is a general phenomenon in organic chemistry, which is that, and, and this is true of many reactions, that the more reactive the species you have, in general, the less selective it is, and vice versa. The less reactive it is, the more selective it is, and we shall see quite soon some examples of that. And the first example comes when we compare the halogens in this selectivity uh, 
this selectivity phenomenon. We've already said last week the fluorine is very reactive. It explodes with most alkanes, in fact. Chlorine is also pretty reactive, although it's generally not explosive. And bromine is only weakly active. So let's look now at this methyl versus methylene versus methine selectivity for these three halogens. And we're here we have a table. We're comparing fluorine, which is a gas at 25 degrees centigrade, with chlorine, which is a gas at 25 degrees centigrade. And in order to make the bromine a gas, we had to work at 90 degrees centigrade because it is normally a liquid at room temperature. And if we compare these three, what we see is that for fluorine, the methyl to methylene to methane ratio is 1 to 1.2 to 1.4. The methane does react faster than the methyl, but it's not quite as big a difference as with chlorine. And that's because fluorine is a much more reactive species. The selectivity is lower. Chlorine, we've already seen, it's 1 to 3.76 to 5.06. What about bromine, which is much less reactive? Now we find that the ratio is 1 to 250 to 6,300. In other words, a methylene is 250 times more reactive towards bromine than is a methyl CH. And a methane is 6,300 times more reactive. So in terms of making products and synthesis, bromine is obviously the much more selective and is much more useful, one might think, at first. But remember there is this balance of selectivity versus reactivity. And the trouble with bromine is, although it is very selective, because it is low reactivity, it takes such a long time. If you get product, it may take weeks if you do isolate the product, whereas chlorine may react in hours or days. OK, what we've seen in this lecture is the different reactivities of CH bonds. We've seen how we can explain that in terms of hyperconjugation, and we've used that in a practical sense in the chlorination of a number of couple of compounds and introduce the concept of selectivity, which we'll use again in the next lecture.